On this episode of China Unscripted, the Belt and Road Initiative is spreading around the world, but it's a new type of communist colonialism, and it could put us all in debt to China. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganeshta. And joining us today is Dr. Rachel Winston, author of well, many books, uh, the latest being uh, Diplomacy with Chinese Characteristics and Belts and Roads Under Beijing Thumbs. Uh, singular thumb. I think only Beijing only has one thumb. Uh, but it's an iron thumb. Yeah. <laughs> the iron, when will we get behind the, the iron, iron thumb? thumb. Yeah. So now that we've established how smart we are, <laughs> Dr. Rachel Winston, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. I- I'm I'm excited to be here. Well, so I know your background originally was sort of more in um, education. How did you get interested in China? I started traveling to um, schools in China and uh, speaking at schools. And then I did an MBA program where I went to school um, partly in China. And then I went to Harvard and started studying um, China's economy. And that that kind of the ball started rolling. And I I found it so fascinating that the China that I knew when I was a child is was not the China that was coming up today. It was a very different China. Well, so what do you mean? What was what was the difference that you saw? Um, when I my father was with the United Nations and uh, he was the director of one of the branches of the United Nations. And so I um, I grew up around uh, international politics and I mean, you didn't go to China. Uh, you didn't visit China. You didn't fly to China. Um, it was a place that was off limits. Um, you really didn't know what was going on there. But whatever it was, the people were really poor and the cities were not developed. And it wasn't a place where we even considered going and we traveled all over the world. So um, then when I I was teaching college uh, uh, and I retired, then I uh, said, you know, I need to know more about this country that is growing so fast that we all should be aware of what's happening. And I needed to be more aware because I wasn't, I didn't know enough. Well, yeah, I think it's, what's interesting is you, you've already had like a very rich career. You know, you started started college when you were 13 you, and you have multiple degrees in, in many fields. You've taught many fields. And then after all of this, you decided, oh, let's look at let's look at China. And I imagined um, it sounds like at the beginning you sort of uh, kind of had sort of the more rosy view of, you know, what China is today, because obviously you went from a country that, you know, you couldn't travel to to, oh, infrastructure, high speed rails. So what was that change of thought like? So I. I went to, when I went to um, Shanghai, I was like, wow, these buildings are beautiful. And then I went to Guiang and I went to Hengguashu Falls and I went to Xi'an. I went to, I went all over China and everywhere I went, it was big, beautiful, developed and art, you know, and you go to Los Angeles because I live near Los Angeles. I mean, it, it doesn't look like parts of China. It's a hellscape. <laughs> I was like, you know, I would rather live there in China than here. In fact, we have our favorite hotel. Um, I didn't 
tell you this, but I, I live in a hotel um, 24-7. I don't have a house or an apartment, and I haven't had one for a very long time. So um, so I live in a hotel. So we have our favorite hotels in China in every city. And um, I don't think I can go back and live in any of them anymore. But um, but and I don't think I'd risk my life. But I uh, I found China remarkably different than the China that I had expected, except on the outside, it looks so beautiful, but on the inside, it's very dangerous. Um, so I just had, I was really fascinated by how a country could turn around like that. When did you start realizing that it was dangerous? I think it's when I started working with businesses in China. Mm. Um, some of the people that I worked with, um, talked about cooperation. Their favorite word is, we're going to cooperate. Sounds nice. Yeah, it, it sounded great. Win-win. They would say win-win. Every It's going to be great for both of us. But actually, it never happened that way. Um, some of the people took my, my picture, my bio, everything, put it on their website and said that I worked with them, but I never worked with them. And after a number of experiences like that, um, that didn't stop me. The one of the clients, one of the people that I met with at a hotel in Shanghai um, was a CCP um, military officer. It was a woman. I, that She was one of the scariest people I've ever seen in my life. She, she, I mean, I was talking to her daughter, but, um, but she stood right over top of us in her military outfit. And I was like, am I going to get out of this? hotel alive. I mean, I was really afraid for my life and um, I needed to know more. But when I, I, I mean, really, it was Xinjiang that um, that did it for me. It was, how do we have concentration camps today? I don't understand that. I went to Dachau in 1972 I, and I, it said never again. And how is never again mean that we have not just one, but we have hundreds of concentration camps? And it was really the concentration camps that um, that got me trying to understand more about China's policies and why they would do this. Well, why did you want to focus on the Belt and Road? Because I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't really know much about. So um, my thesis at Harvard and the University of Chicago were both surrounded about um, the South China Sea because what was happening in the South China Sea was unconscionable. And I didn't understand why the United States didn't, didn't protect um, Scarborough Shoal. Like, I didn't understand that. Yeah. Um, I, I read the Mutual Defense Treaty, and I, I didn't understand that. Just to give some quick background for the audience, because that's an important event, uh, Scarborough Shoal uh, claimed by the Philippines and China. Chinese essentially sent their Coast Guard in to occupy the shoal. Philippines and China looked like they were really going to go to blows over that. The U.S. stepped in and said, you know, just both sides leave. The Philippines side left, the Chinese side stayed and occupies it till this day. And the Philippines has a mutual defense treaty with the United States. And the fact that the U.S. just kind of let this happen. It had shockwaves in Southeast Asia for a long time. Uh, so continue, please. So. I mean, once I started reading about Scarborough Shoal, then I realized that China had taken other islands yeah. long before that. And and they were threatening others. 
And I think I was attracted by, you know, words like, you know, wolf warrior, salami slicing, you know, these kinds of things that were like, wow, you know, what are they doing? So my first book was Raging Waters in the South China Sea. The, the problem was when I got there, I was like, what is happening in India? Like, is mm-hmm. really, is China going to India and, and or Bhutan or like Nepal? Like, why are they doing this, taking all these other countries? So then I, I got into China's power grab and expanding claims. That was my second book. So I was really just in Asia. But Africa kept on, com- you know, pulling me. Like, what is China doing in Africa? And so I wrote Belt and Road under Beijing's thumb. But the book was just so long. It really, it was so long. It was like 550 pages and I uh, almost 600 pages. And I just split the book in two. <laughs> I was like, you know something? We can't, you know, people are not going to read like that long of a book. So I split in two and I made it into Diplomacy with Chinese Characteristics and Belt and Road under, under Beijing's Thumb. So really those two were written at the same time. They were one book until I cleaved them um, uh, apart. Like Kill Bill Part 1 and 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, Wolf Warrior Diploma, you know, Wolf Warrior 1 and 2, right? That's got, uh, that's China made that movie? They've, yeah, there's multiple. That's Wolf specifically yeah. called Wolf. Oh yeah, it is called Wolf Warrior. That's where it came yeah, from. The yeah. whole thing came from Wolf Warrior. You, oh yeah, you forgot. yeah, I, I forgot. It's just so in the lexicon now. <laughs> you should watch it. it. I watched that movie um, just because I was curious, and I found it really quite fascinating how countries use propaganda through film to get their people, you know, excited about nationalism and everything. So I found the movie really interesting. Um, they have subtitles. It's obviously in Chinese, in Mandarin, but they've been doing that a long time. Uh, I know they like a big thing is like these anti-Japanese movies because the state has so many censorship requirements for their film industry. They basically are stuck making films about World War II and why the Japanese are evil. <laughs> and like the, some of the things are insane, like a, a Chinese soldier throwing a grenade into the air to blow up a Japanese jet or plane. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they've been. I remember watching some from like the 1930s, you know, like oh, going way back, going way back, like this type of, well, that would have been still under the nationalist, but kind of starting in the, in the forties and fifties, there was a lot of these like red movies, right? Yeah. Where you have the, like, is at the time it was more glorifying the party, but now nobody really wants to watch them as much. So they have to kind of turn into nationalism. So they're doing the kind of the 1980s America type of movie like rambo top gun i saw one where a chinese soldier literally ripped a japanese soldier in half with his bare hands i believe that was historically (laughs) accurate yes that's (laughs) world war ii it was a it was a bloody bloody hard war but the the, the only part that's a lie would have been if it was a communist soldier who did it yeah because the communists actually weren't really fighting the uh, japanese forces um Uh anyway where where were we oh yeah africa So Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, Africa. Let's talk a bit about that. The um, Yeah, because if you're talking about the Belt and Road, Africa inevitably comes up. Yeah. I mean, they were surprisingly Mao went into um, Africa really early in his administration. They've been in Africa for quite a while. They built the Tazara line in the 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever. Yeah. Um, So uh, it's been half a century for sure that they've been there. So we kind of think that, 
a lot of these contracts in the Belt and Road Initiative, and now China has 140 countries signed on with the Belt and Road Initiative, 140 of them. This isn't this isn't one, you know, this isn't like a couple of countries. There are 140. And so in Africa, China needs uh, resources. They need um, minerals. They need energy. They don't have these natural resources. And so the best thing to do was to go into countries that um, could provide them with the minerals that they needed in order to produce or manufacture products. And they're doing it more so now um, than before. And it's really, it's not just about the minerals. It's, you know, if ever you need proof that China is trying to create an alternative world order to compete against the United States, Belt and Road, 140 countries, they're creating this alternate sphere of influence uh, that also ties into Chinese military expansion. Uh, we'll get into some of the digital Belt and Road stuff as well, but also about, you know, uh, uh, surrounding India, for instance, and eliminating competition to the Chinese Communist Party world order. Certainly the string of pearls, you know, the Indo-Pacific is important. But I think another thing that we don't think about quite often is how China is in, inserting people into United Nations organizations. You know, they have a member on the Human Rights Committee, the Human Rights Committee. Can you believe it? Um, and how they're doing that is if they have a country that can't pay their debt, they owe China. And so it's very easy. You are going to vote with us, um, tell the United Nations that we should have um, China, China or a proxy serve on these committees so that we can have China friendly policies. Um, and I think we're going to see more of the United Nations turn into a, a China friendly organization. Yeah, I mean, definitely I would say saw that with the WHO. I would say you definitely had that before Belt and Road, but it it's definitely increased more and more. Not just in the U UN, but also you know ASEAN, the EU, all of these international bodies. And what's interesting too is you don't even have to be a country that's in debt to China, as long as you've signed a Belt and Road agreement with them. There's a certain expectation that you're going to align with China's politics. Right. Otherwise, they'll be unhappy with you. You know, you're not cooperating. I think, you know, well, 140 countries like that's more than two thirds of the countries. Right. There's about 200, depending on what you call a country. Right. And so essentially, China now has influence over more than two thirds of the world's votes in the, the world's only like important governing body. That's terrifying it's terrifying i think everybody should be terrified and yet i don't think the media or people really are aware that that there's this tidal wave and it's you can see the tidal wave and it's right over top of us but the title the tidal wave is promising win-win mutual cooperation <laughs> yeah well why do you think people are ignoring this. Uh, China took the opportunity for uh, through the pandemic to engage with countries all over the world. And 
nobody nobody is thinking about that because we're all thinking about our health, our fate, our um, vaccines, whether we're going to go to school. The changes in political environment um, are taking precedent in the media rather than um, really, guys, you should worry about this because it's not a person who's an alarmist. I'm not an alarmist. I'm just a regular citizen. I'm just a regular citizen. I live in Southern California. Um, I am just awakened to um, information that I think people should know. And the reason you saw my book, the reason why my books are all colorful, they have pictures in it. And if you don't know where Laos is, fine, there's a map. If you don't know where uh, the Caspian Sea is, fine, there's a map. I made every book so that it was like I don't want to say a children's book, but it was like a, a, per, a book that you could actually read, that you don't have to know anything ahead of time. Um, I explained social credit by showing you how the social credit works. Um, so uh, everything is in pictures. I really appreciated it, actually. I like the colors in the pictures. <laughs> colors and pictures are great. Come on, who needs all those words? <laughs> I mean, I think there are plenty of words in the book. There are too. plenty of words. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't read, which is why I do videos. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Guys, don't rope me into that. <laughs> you're, you're, you're laughing about that, but the truth is that people um, need what you do. They need videos because it's easier for them to turn on a video or a podcast or, um, or something and, and watch it than to sit down for a long period of time and read thousands and thousands of words of text. And, I, and I'm aware of that, but Matt, I don't have your skills. So I don't, um, I haven't created these uh, videos, but um, the best I could do is to create books with writing that's understandable and pictures so that it's, I show you exactly where you were talking about digital, where the digital, um, you know, Silk Road is, where China's ports are. The, this is where China's airports are. All over the world, you can see where there's piracy. Here are the latest pirate attacks. You know, I, I actually have pictures that show little pirate boats. <laughs> it's great. Do you we think you did that? <laughs> Do you think you did that because you have so many years in education and teaching like that gave you a certain perspective? Yeah. Um, I taught math um, for 35 years. You know, people ask me every time, "What? why is X plus X two X? I don't know. Why is one apple plus one apple two apples? And, you know, not to be sarcastic to them, like, because I wasn't. I was, I answered the question every single time, um, realizing that it's this, you know, it's in just another person who doesn't know. It's fine, right? But given that, if they can't see that, this is at universities, right? I retired from, you know, colleges and universities, right? You know, I, they need to see it. So I drew pictures. I was a big picture person. So when I found people who didn't, they said, I don't want to read a long article like that. It's too complicated. Um, I mean, part of the complication is if you don't know uh, where Fiery Cross Reef is or where Scarborough Shoal is, um, it's very difficult to read about Scarborough Shoal, right? Where are the paracels? Where are the Spratleys? You can talk about this, but unless you show a picture, that's why I love what you guys do. Seriously, like you have 
you you talk and then you have a picture you show what you know matt you know th- this is back to your videoing right um they can actually see what you are um trying to say but people who are p- reading a book they want to know this information as well but they can't see it and so i drew pictures well so hold on just to just get a little clarification how is an x an apple <laughs> <laughs> Uh, That's good. Well, um, I can. You can take a class for me, <laughs> and I'll go through the whole reason why the integral of one over x is the natural log of the absolute value of x plus c. Yeah, I, I understood that. <laughs> <laughs> New show, <laughs> math unexplained, <laughs> math 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 un, un- unrepentant. No, like. It can it can be about like you math know, undivided making fractals by hey, hand like on the complex plane or something. Those are because they're pretty, right? You know what I'm talking about. I can't, I can't yeah. read, but I can do math. You can see it, right? Yeah, fractals, fractals are pretty. <laughs> they are, as are your books. But so to get a slightly more hinged. Uh, <laughs> So it's interesting. At the start of 2020, it seemed like the Belt and Road was getting bad press. It seemed like, you know, like countries like Malaysia were beginning to fight back against a lot of these predatory Belt and Loan, Belt and, Belt Road. and Road loans, <laughs> X equals Apple. Uh, but then the coronavirus happened. How did that change things for Xi Jinping's Belt and Road plan? As soon as 2020 happened, China went in and into the South China Sea and stopped oil exploration, um, stopped countries from building on their islands, started moving into countries. And that's not specifically Belt and Road, um, but China thinks of itself as the manufacturing uh, capital of the world. Um, Anyone who needs something manufactured, come to us because we're going to make, we're going to be the product distributor. They needed these trains not to help other countries. They needed the trains so that they could deliver all of their products to all of these places. And so there were all of these deliveries of face masks and PPE and ventilators and so on, um, continuously using the Belt and Road to transport materials that were needed by countries to all of these locations that shut down. Now, China didn't really shut down in the same way. Um, they had their workers working despite the um, the virus. Oh, yeah, they didn't have a virus in China, I remember. They don't have any deaths there. Um, so they just had everybody continue to work. And um, same thing with, uh, with the Maritime Silk Road. They needed their ships um, traveling. And so their Belt and Road was the avenue for uh, face mask diplomacy and vaccine diplomacy and all of their other kinds of diplomacies that they um, sent around the world. Yeah, it's interesting when you're talking about also them going into the South China Sea, because it was kind of like when everybody was distracted, right? They were going to the South China Sea, they were starting this border conflict with India where they were encroaching on this territory. And it was like they were thinking, well, you know, now's a good time for this. It's a good time to build the um, concentration camps in um, in Xinjiang, right? It's a great time to 
uh, take more of uh, of Bhutan's land. I mean, they literally built Chinese villages on the other side of the border. It, you know, little just creeping um, in every country, taking a little bit more. They have a military base in Tajikistan, like, you know, um, everywhere around. They said, we're your benefactors. We have money. We will help you. I don't know if you did a, a video on this, but um, they they had these bars of gold that they were using to secure their money. It was uh, lots of gold. And the gold was actually not gold at all. Um, so I'm not sure how much money China really has. Um, I'm sure that because they have produced things for all over the world, um, they have lots of money, but they told countries everywhere, we will help you. We know that you're having a really hard time and we know that you know, you're financially unstable, but we can give you money. I don't know where the United States thinks it's going to just pick up, you know, a few trillion dollars here or there. I mean, as if we have forgotten what it, what dollars means, right? Um, so I think, but everybody thinks that money grows on trees. So that's why everybody in the United States has their hand out to, um, to get, um, you know, money, free money, right? Isn't that great? So China didn't just um, offer to give money to, you know, loan money to the United States. They um, offered to loan money all over the world. Um, of course, there was a requirement that you um, help China out whenever China needed it. And what's interesting to me that a lot of these Belt and Road deals, you know, that were announced were very like they're often really like, oh, like it's going to be hundreds of million dollars in this country or, you know, billions of dollars in Africa, this kind of thing. And then when it gets down to brass tacks, it seems like it a lot of these projects kind of disappear. Like they don't actually, you know, the happen. money never or, shows or they up. start and they peter out yeah. sometimes. Yeah. So that happened with the Philippines. So my focus really um for you know quite a few years was just on the Philippines because the Philippines fascinated me for quite a number of reasons. Uh in part because um Benino Aquino and Duterte are such different personalities and how that happened is very, is just fascinating. So China, when Duterte was, uh, before Duterte was elected, um, China offered um, the Philippines $26 billion. They haven't gotten that money. This is four years later because Duterte took office in 2016. Mm -hmm. So they haven't gotten the money. They just made these promises. And if you look at the pictures of what China drew for what Manila could possibly look like, it is phenomenal. If you fly to Shanghai and you say, wow, that's really beautiful. Can you do that for my country? And so you come back to Manila and you go, wow, you know, a little tuk-tuks here and, you know, very narrow roads here. And, you know, we're going to build this magnificent city that is just as beautiful as Shanghai. It Those specs are amazing. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. China did not give that money to um, the Philippines. It was just promises. But Duterte, you know, he was strung along like like a like a leash, you know, like he was on a leash. And, and China was like, you know, here, you know, I'll give you something. But he gave him nothing. Mean, he didn't give him anything. Right. And just, you know, he wants him to give over his islands and his um and his uh, 
oil. That's what he wants. It's it's interesting because, you know, Duterte had actually run when he was campaigning. He campaigned on this standing up to China platform, famously saying that he would ride a jet ski out to the Scarborough Shoal to defend the Philippines' claim. Later, he said that that was hyperbole. Uh, really? <laughs> yes. Yeah, actually, it's, it's almost like a politician didn't follow through. Uh, but then, yeah, like, well, it was it was like he... He campaigned on this this stand up to China platform, and then very quickly, he uh, moved towards China and away from the United States. Uh, but you know, yet despite that, despite you know ditching the U.S. as a, as the long term partner, uh, Duterte really didn't get what he was promised for his country. So that's going to obviously. Uh, you know, at some point, people in the Philippines are going to be like, wait a second, this just didn't work. It's OK. He doesn't have to run for re-election. That's right. They only get one term. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's trying to get his daughter, Sarah, to um to take over his place. Oh, really? So, you know, so we'll see what that happens. She's the mayor of Davao, right, where he was a mayor. And so she's a mayor now and he's trying to get her to become the um, president. So we'll see what ha- happens with that. So we might have well, the well, Duterte you had, you, you dynasty. Had, you, well, you had the, the, the Aquino dynasty, Corey Aquino and Benigno. And, you know, I mean, we have it here, H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. And, you know, I think I think there's a there's it's nice to have a legacy where a tiny, tiny group of elite people run a supposedly democratic country. Well, I think what's interesting about what you were saying is like sort of the how people around the world are enthralled by these Chinese megacities. Uh, you know, they they see that. It's like, oh, wow, what what a functional society China must be. Please tell us how we can do that. But the reality is those cities exist because they exist in an authoritarian regime where the state owns all the land, is able to control every aspect of the economy to funnel it into any kind of insane construction they want. It's not something that can be replicated in other parts of the world without that same kind of authoritarian system. For sure. Well, you know, going back to what Shelley was saying about um, uh, about the islands, you know, and what what happened um, right during after the pandemic uh, or during the pandemic, um, China went and tried to take another island, Whitson Reef, um, hung outside of Whitson Reef um, with hundreds of boats thinking, you know, we're ready to take your island. They said they were parked because it was a storm. What a cockamamie, like really, you you must work really hard, China, to to come up with these like fabulous stories that make no sense since there wasn't a storm and they were all tied up right outside of the reef. I mean, um, Duterte had to 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 do something to get those boats away from there. And this is what China does. It's you know, it gets really close and it says, you know, you know, are you really going to? you know, you don't want to have a war, do you? You know, we're we're going to get really close and we're going to snatch this island. And unless they push back, China will take the island. Which is they actually call it the Scarborough model, named after what they did in the Scarborough Shoal, because I don't think they really expected at the time that they could get away with that. And when it turned out they could, hey, new new foreign policy. But they didn't have to get away with it. I mean, the United States could have gone... Barack Obama had this negotiation. China was supposed to leave. The United States could have gone in and said, you violated this. But just like the Alaska conversation with Anthony Blinken and um, 
and Jake Sullivan. You know, you can promise two minutes and we'll take 15. You know, this is the, you know, this is your new model. You know, give me two, I'll take 15. Uh, that's the China model. It's like they say, if you give a mouse an island in the South China Sea. He'll ask for a glass of milk. Yeah. That's how the story goes. <laughs> okay. I should write children's books. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, so let's also talk about uh, a big focus of the Belt and Road is is the digital aspect, the digital Belt and Road. And that ties into Chinese telecom Huawei creating smart cities. This is sort of a big thing that they're doing in Africa. But, you know, the, the United States has been trying to create a global pushback against Huawei. So where where is... What what why is this Huawei digital belt and road so significant to the Chinese Communist Party? So if you can control all of what people say, just look at the United States, if you can control what people say, then you can stop them from saying anything that you know, this is authoritarianism 101. You can stop them from doing anything. Well, in Africa, for example, the biggest phone companies in Africa are now Chinese phone companies. And the reason why they're more likely to buy a Chinese phone is because China undercuts the price. So charges them less than it costs to even make the phone. Why would they do that? They want to do that because they want to have everybody to have a Chinese phone. They want to be on their system. And they want them plugged into their internet so that they can listen. They built this big, um, like, CIA, NSA type of place in, um, in Guizhou province. It's huge. It's massive. Um, and they're collecting people's DNA. They're collecting their voice. They're collecting their records. Um, you know, as if they can take information from people all over the world um, and, and hold on to that information, they can control you. Well, you know, some people listening might be like, wait, they're taking our DNA. But like this, this has actually come out. The uh, what was the name of the company with the prenatal tests? BGI. BGI. Yeah. Uh, one of the most popular prenatal tests in the world. And yeah. well, the, I mean, the, 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 the that information goes back to China. They're collect. They are collecting DNA from a lot of people around I mean, the world. A lot of when COVID hit. BGI started going around to different countries offering tests, PCR tests. Kind of this vaccine right? belt and road. And then they also offered to build testing facilities in countries. They offered in the U.S., they offered California, a number of other states, to build testing facilities for them, uh, for PCR tests. And then the U.S. Uh, federal government was like, do not take that money. So you bad. are not allowed to. And But if they hadn't stepped in, I mean, California bought... $3 billion worth of masks from China. I mean, I don't I don't see that they necessarily would have not accepted this Chinese, you know, like bio... Uh, Trojan horse? Well, I wasn't going to say Trojan horse, but like this company, right, that has an interest in collecting all of this DNA data uh, from the U.S. and other places because like data is power now. And they would, California might not have said no. How about 23andMe, Ancestry.com? You know, how much money? I always say, how much money is your, your life worth? You know, or your, your belief or your company worth? You know, how much can I buy you for? If you give 23andMe or Ancestry.com 
billions more than they could possibly ever imagine in their lifetime. And China can do it easily. And then they have everybody's DNA that they, that's was sent into, um, into those agencies. Imagine it wouldn't be that difficult to get a lot more data. The question is who's going to stop them and whether or not they can, you know, take those deals or, or shuffle off some of that data underground so that people don't know. I would like to think that there isn't a price tag on my head, um, which is why I continue to write books, even though I know it's dangerous. Um, but I, I know that there are other people who don't. I have people who have been around my, uh, my you know, office who um, will not have their, you know, name or um, information. Show. They don't, they'll help me, but they will not, they don't want to be involved. They don't want China to know anything because they're afraid. And I, I think this is going to happen more and more. Once you, once they, someone feels that their life is, or their family's life is in danger, um, they will no longer do anything or say anything against China, which is what's happening in Hollywood and what's happening in um, Silicon Valley. And, you know, there are a lot of places where people are not uh, willing to say anything against China. This really is, it shows the the terror of the alternate Chinese system that the Communist Party is trying to set up. I don't even want to call it Chinese. It's just a communist totalitarian state that's influencing the entire world. Uh, however, so the Belt and Road, it, it, you know, on paper, it's this infrastructure investment project. And it, it is creating this horrible alternate system that, you know, someday the Chinese Communist Party, you could use it to dominate the world. But I mean, at the same, someday. Well, it's well on the way. But, you know, a lot of the world does need infrastructure development. If China obviously was able to step into a market where there was a big need for it, why did this vacuum exist that the Chinese Communist Party was so able to exploit? They can produce um, items cheaper than anyone else in the world. Um, if you're using slave labor, it doesn't take a lot of math to figure out that if you have to pay someone $15, $20 an hour in the United States, and it costs $0 an hour there, um, then it's a whole lot cheaper to produce something, right? So once you have that uh, ability to manufacture at very reduced cost, and you're willing to take a hit, like we were talking about Africa, you're willing to sell phones to everybody in Africa um, for less than the cost of the phone. Or you probably read in the news this uh, solar panels. So they're producing these solar panels that are, I guess are very difficult to produce. So doing it in in Xinjiang and um, they're selling them at less than the cost of making them, so that no other company wants to go into that market. You are saying a vacuum, but the vacuum is created because if China can get everybody out of the marketplace because they can undercut. All, uh, all other competitors, then there's a vacuum. Like there's, they're the only one. They have a monopoly. And so they're trying to create monopolies in certain areas so that the, you know, other countries don't get involved in the manufacturing. Which is, which is uh, possible because the Chinese Communist Party doesn't need to be accountable to the Chinese people. Like we just did an episode recently about uh, the dams that have been breaking in China after the recent flooding. And uh, one, we quoted one official who was saying that most dams in China 
are old and in desperate need of repairs, but there's just no money to do that. However, there is what what's the Belt and Road price tag? Four trillion dollars. I mean, that's not real. That's not real, but, but I mean, but it's hundreds, in the hundreds of, of billions. billions. Yeah. yeah. Right. So it's not like the United States where like every time there's any amount of foreign aid, you get like a bunch of people saying, hey, why are we sending money to a foreign country? Right. I mean, also, they what you were talking about with the undercutting with the phones or the solar panels, they do with infrastructure as well. They will go in and bid on a port in Greece and offer much lower like like they will offer a higher price. They will do it for less than or they will bring in and operate it for less than anybody else like they will basically make it so that financially they are the only choice. Yeah. I mean, when, when you were in uh, Greece, the port of Piraeus, the whole like they'd basically they'd taken over half of taken it over, by, yeah. by that point. But yeah. yeah. Um, but like a Chinese company came in and it was a standout company and they were like, we can run this. And uh, Greece gave them a, a really long lease for it and they were like we can you know they brought in chinese workers uh, and, you know, and undercut the greek workers yeah, yeah. and uh, but you know that meant that they could do it much more efficiently and the government didn't have to pay that much yeah and they didn't have to deal with like safety standards or like overtime it's you know or environmental a, protections yeah. in a lot of countries china's gone in and built these um power plants and destroyed the rivers so people can't even use their rivers anymore the same way it is in China. The rivers are, are you can't swim in China's rivers, but you can't swim in the rivers in a lot of other places either because China doesn't have any environmental protections. They say it's up to the country to handle the environment. We're just going to build these with all of the drainage and toxic waste going into the rivers. And this is a problem everywhere, Africa in particular. But, you know, Hungary, um, I just read a report about the rivers in Hungary. Um, it's just as bad there. It's it's interesting, you know, that the, the river pollution is one example of an externality, right? It's like a, a company goes in and they, they, they take advantage of some aspect of the natural environment or the society or whatever that they don't pay for. But the actual the, the, the true cost of production or development has these externalities, these spillovers uh, into other aspects of the environment or society or politics, et cetera. So beyond just the river pollution, what are some of the other externalities that we see when Chinese companies come in and into Africa, undercut the local markets and start to dominate in certain sectors? I think, well, certainly the air, um, if we want to stay on the environmental side, but I'll take an, another one that's kind of interesting in the um, uh, China-Pakistan economic corridor. So they've built this train from, from Xinjiang down to Gwadar. And in Gwadar, they have a, they, you know, because they use all Chinese workers. In Gwadar, they have a Chinese, we'll call it encampment or city. And they created this barbed wire fence around like a chunk of the city where they had built um, living spaces for the Chinese. So another externality is that going into Africa, I gave the example of Pakistan, that um, little Chinese cities are being walled off inside another country um, that the country can no longer use because it's got 10,000 employees from China. 
And the, they don't want the Chinese to leave. So the reason why the barbed wire is not to protect the people, it's because they the Chinese workers could try to leave, even though they do take their passport um, to, to prevent them from escaping. They wall off the whole area, which makes the people in the country un- completely annoyed. Um, can you imagine if, if in your city, they walled off a place for 10,000 people and you weren't allowed to use your parks anymore or wherever you know you, this was located? Well, that reminds me of what happened in Cambodia, right? In Sinukville, where they had a bunch of like Chinese companies come in to do development. And then they basically created this kind of space where the Chinese mafia moved in because casinos moved in and then brought essentially terrible crime. This sounds like Vancouver as well. And, and, And human trafficking. Yeah. But also interestingly, like, the in Sinukville in Cambodia, they're building casinos, uh, but c- it's it's illegal uh, in most cases for Cambodian people to gamble or to own casinos, and so they basically created the space where essentially there's a different jurisdiction, right? It's almost like a Chinese jurisdiction that's under kind of China's rules, run by China's enforcers, which in that case are basically the, the triads or the mafia that are generally controlled by the party, even though they're sort of on their own, uh, and then approved by the corrupt dictator. In the case of Cambodia, Hun Sen is a one of those presitators who is elected, you know, and 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 rules uh, with with way too much power. And so, like, just imagine imagining this now in like water in Pakistan and like all over Africa and the countries that, you know, we can't even name because there's like, I know. think South Africa had this controversy because they wanted Chinese police to come in to, wow. uh, you know, to kind of police some of these areas where the, there were basically these Chinatowns. Oh, and so the, good. you know, they're state owned companies. And then it was kind of, I don't remember all the details now because it's been a few years, but there was a big controversy over whether they're, they didn't call it the Chinese police would come in, but they called it cooperation, right? Oh, win-win mutual cooperation. I love cooperation. <laughs> Where essentially these places could be under Chinese jurisdiction, what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you frame it like this, it, it, it suddenly the Belt and Road becomes very clear as to what it is. It's colonialism. It's Chinese communist colonialism. So there are two things. One, you know, if you think about uh, Sri Lanka, um, China's gone in and um, tried to protect their investment in Sri Lanka. In Myanmar, so you know, you know, you follow the story in Myanmar, um, China had a bunch of businesses, manufacturing facilities in Myanmar, except the um, some people uh, attacked those Chinese businesses. And so China said, well, we need to bring in our military to protect our assets. And so this is happening really around the globe. There are Chinese think, I mean, sorry, American think tanks and uh, advisors and stuff. I just want to, I just want to have a conversation with them. Are you kidding? They say, well, there's only one military base in, uh, China only has one military base outside of China and it's Djibouti. Okay, really? What, what planet are you on? In every one of these countries where the people in the country were not so happy about having Chinese, China take over big swatches of land and move all these Chinese people in. China moved their military in to protect the 
to protect their investment. What What are some specific uh, cities reports where there's evidence of, of the Chinese military actually being there, just so the audience gets an idea of how widespread this is? Uh, well, for sure, um, Sri Lanka, because they've taken over lots of Sri Lanka's beach area, right? Right. I mean, they, they've got the port Hanban Tota, which they somehow got a 99-year lease on after Sri Lanka couldn't pay its bills for the Belt and Road. That's not the only port they have in Sri Lanka. Um, so the string of pearls is um, Bangladesh, Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Oman, Pakistan, Seychelles, um, Maldives, um, Kenya, Djibouti. They may not have a full-blown base but they have military that are protecting their assets. This is kind of the same thing with the uh, with the uh, marine maritime militia. The maritime militia. They say, "Oh well, um, China has fewer ships than us." Uh, okay, I guess maybe fewer like really big ones. But if you have seventeen thousand distant water fleet, seventeen thousand boats that are militarized all around the planet, um, it's way more than any other country, maybe combined. Just just because they have, you know, they're giant and have reinforced holes and the people on board carry weapons doesn't mean they're military ships, right? I mean, they're just normal fishing boats. Well, so this is the, the challenge of talking about the Chinese Communist Party. There is no uh, separation between like private Chinese companies and the Chinese state. Uh, that also means there's really no, it's a blurry line between any company and the Chinese military. Uh, so there's always a sort of like plausible deniability they have, but because the lines are so blurred, really it's everything ties back to the Chinese Communist Party making decisions. And the military of China isn't the military of China, it's the armed wing of the Chinese Communist Party itself. The United States is, is deceiving the American people in saying that we are the strongest, meanest, baddest, um, you know, military, and we've got all of these facilities and everything. I mean, you probably read the report of the nuclear um, facilities that China's now building. Oh, the new silos, yeah. Yeah, they're doing more of that. So, but I mean, we, the shipping alone, just boating alone, when you look at a Philippine sh a fishing vessel, they say, oh, well, the um the Chinese fishing vessel and the uh, uh, Philippine fishing vessel are right next to each other. Like, yeah, the Philippine fishing vessel looks like a tugboat or like a, I, I saw you on one of those uh, Philippine yeah. fishing vessels. So I know you know what that's like. And then there's this China massive like military militarized ship. I mean, they're not you can't compare one to another. Yeah, I'd, for the record, when I was standing on that little Filipino fishing boat looking at the huge Chinese boats at the Scarborough Shoal, I was not scared. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's mm. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we've definitely established that the Belt and Road is sort of this communist colonialism plan that's really setting, creating a uh, alternate global system to challenge the United States. But there is... One major advantage the United States has, which is the U.S. dollar, even most Belt and Road projects are done using U.S. dollars. However, and I know you're shaking your head because we're getting a chapter out of your book, uh, 
China's push to get a digital currency. Tell us about that and how that's, that really is like the final uh, nail in the coffin, I guess. Uh, China's goal, its stated goal, is to replace the dollar with the RMB. So, um, and it's not surprising that they want to do this with a digital wand, right? So why would we want to take dollars to use for our projects when we can take our own money? And besides, the IMF declared that the RMB was a perfectly legitimate money to uh, kind of money to be used for uh, uh, IMF projects. Really? Really? Like, wh- really? I mean, a- and one thing you haven't talked about at all, and that is a- a- um, the Arctic. China's gone into the Arctic because it calls itself a near Arctic state. It's in the Arctic and it's in, uh, it's in Antarctica. But 30% of all the oil is in, um, is in the poles in the Arctic. And China's gone in there calling itself a near Arctic state and says it's going to be a polar power. They're not even at the polls. They got themselves on the Arctic Council in 2013. And they are, um, they're taking over um, the Arctic as well. This is because it's a, a shorter route. The Northern Sea route is shorter to get to Europe. And so um, they're, China's really got its fingers in a lot of pies right now. Digital yuan is one, and that will spread for sure. I don't think that there's a doubt as to whether or not um, the digital yuan will um, make it uh, a real challenge to the U.S. dollar. Rob, so uh, about the digital yuan, you know, the, the U.S. has a fiat currency that's no longer backed by gold, and China has a fiat currency that's not backed by gold. What makes China's currency less legitimate than the U.S. currency? Um, Transparency. That's the best word I can use. There's no transparency in China. They 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 cover everything They They do not share any information. You don't know what happened with the coronavirus. We won't ever know what happened with the coronavirus. we really don't know about a lot of their systems, and we don't know about the contracts that um, China's made with countries like in Africa. Um, that's because they have a system that says don't don't tell, or else you will you'll regret it for the rest of your lives. Right. So, do we have data on like the Chinese money supply? No, we don't have data on we we only have Chinese China's data, but China oh. doesn't provide transparent data to anyone just like the um the what happened with the coronavirus i I'm, i mean i don't know what happened so i'm not a you know i don't i'm not a conspiracy theorist i'm just saying we we don't know we won't know but i can tell you i have friends that are in china right now and there was they had more deaths than you thought right they don't they don't share this information and that's the problem with um having a digital wand that surpasses or supplants the um, U.S. dollar. What's a what's a problem a country can get into if they either adapt the the digital yuan directly or if they start, um, say, pegging their currency to the to the digital yuan or or use it as a as a base for their own currency? Like what is what's a specific like issue they could run into that they're not getting into now? China controls them. They can move the money 
they can change the value of their currency. You, you could, on a small level, and it's not a, uh, a financial level in the same way, is if you think about Angola during the pandemic, Angola had all this oil and China had these loans to Angola. And during the pandemic, the oil prices dropped, right? So this is kind of gives you an idea of this digital one scenario. Um, the oil prices dropped and that meant that Angola owed China so much more oil than they owed before, right? So if the, if the price of oil drops in half, they owe twice as much oil to China. And uh, this kind of happened with the prices of a lot of commodities during the pandemic. China raked in because their debt payments that were in resources were given back to China in spades. So if China changes its currency, then they can control what the prices are. Well, that would be terrifying if 140 countries were all reliant on Chinese currency. That would be. And we don't really have any kind of uh, recourse. Like we're not, we talk a lot, um, but we don't, we're we're really being bullied pretty well um, now. The Wolf Warriors and their propaganda team. I, I I said this, you know, to someone. You know, I always try to think of what job would I want to have since I could really kind of do anything. Um, but I, I I thought, you know, I can I can create good, you know, sayings. You know, you want Wolf Warrior? I'll do something like really creative, and I'll get a bunch of people and. Um, give me a team at NSA um, where my ex-husband used to work um, or CIA and give me a team and I I can do what the Wolf Warriors do. Now they have millions of, you know, they have thousands of people. But, um, you know, I did apply to be an advisor um, to the um, to the administration. I didn't get that uh, position. But, um, you know, I, I don't know that I give up my work. I kind of like my work, but um, I always think, you know, what would be like, what, how can I use my knowledge to help? You do a great job in what, you know, but I'm, I'm just me, right? <laughs> you know, um, so I don't have, you know, uh, like all of you to do that. So um, I have some valuable people who, um, who support me, but, um, but w there's some kind of pushback that needs to happen by people who are, uh, who are, who can come up with really good messages that can help explain what, what the United States or what citizens need to do and what's happening in China. See, this whole time I was actually imagining you as the star in the next Jack Ryan movie. Like in, <laughs> as like a CIA analyst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. for a CIA analyst, he sure gets into a lot of trouble. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if you do have contacts at the CIA, you know, I mean, for us as a team that's supposedly funded by the CIA, we haven't seen a single dollar. So if you if you can make some calls for us. <laughs> <laughs> we are not actually asking for money from the CIA. It's a joke. <laughs> it is a uh, joke. Um, well, I did work on Capitol Hill and I worked for President Reagan. So, you know, a long time ago, um, I, I what, did get involved with politics for a while. And, um, and then I decided, you know, just to be a college professor. And now I'm a mentor to young people to help. You know, I always say, you know, uh, Isaac Newton once said, if I see so far, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. And I 
I can only hope that I can be that giant that I that other people stand on um, so that they can see farther because I was born in the 50s. I mean, I'm not a you know, I'm not young like you guys. Right. Um, so, um, you know, I, I just want to be able to do what what a good citizen should do by making people aware. Yeah, and we like to stand on the sol- the shoulders of giants too. Like, for example, someone like you, who's actually really smart and writes, you know, all these books, and then we just rip off your material by presenting it on our podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, you're welcome to do that. In fact, you're welcome to take anything from my books and um and put it anywhere you like. So um, that's an offer because I'm not, you know, Amazon pays me two dollars for every book I sell. Like literally, they pay me two dollars. So like, I'm not making money at this. I'm, I'm doing this because I, I feel like I have a duty as a citizen to do this, right? So um, I, I don't understand how Amazon can only pay me $2 per book, but, um, but you know, that's the way it is. And uh, so if you want to take the, the, anything that I have in my books, you're welcome to. Well, I think that's what's interesting about what you have chosen to do, because, you know, obviously, to a great extent, like most people... In, especially in the United States, don't really know about what China is doing or the Belt and Road. This is kind of a failure of uh, not just the media, but politicians as well. And you have made the choice to focus so much on writing these books specifically geared towards sort of the average American. So why do you think that is the key? Because, because we don't under... Uh, why? Why? Because the Beijing Olympics are coming in um, 2022, because no one really knows why 180 human rights groups have called for the boycott of the Olympics. They just don't understand it. Um, Why? Because if China goes into uh, Taiwan and takes Taiwan um, and they take the Senkaku Islands on the way, we have a mutual defense treaty with Japan. We're in there, too. So this is the very real possibility that we could all be at war um, is is greater than people think. And yet nobody knows why we don't. People don't understand what these treaties actually mean. And they don't understand what would happen if Taiwan fell. Right. Um, You know, just watching the microcosm of uh, Hong Kong was is just horrifying. I mean, if I could meet Agnes Chow, I'd probably just break down crying. Like, can you imagine that you have all this hope for um for Hong Kong and and you are you know multiple languages like you, and then you're just put in jail, right? Um, why? Because you want to be free? I don't understand that. It, I don't think anybody in the United States understands that either. This is the problem because if we don't. If we can't reach the average person to understand why we may be engaged in a war, whether it's the South China Sea with the Philippines, whether it's um, because of Japan or anywhere else, um, that the hotbed, it says raging waters, but the hot, you know, my book says raging waters, but the hotbed is really, you know, South China Sea and East China Sea. And it's dangerous right now. And the danger is on all of these people. Um that have no idea what is happening in the world. And if I could get people to read a book because there are lots of pictures and because it's just easy enough to read, um, I I would love that. Um, I would love them to read any part of it. I have a really good chapter on piracy that I think you know people would think is really um, fascinating on where the pirates went and why you know 
um, how China is protecting its manufacturing resources in the uh, Maritime Silk Road because of this piracy. Um, but there are things that people could be could latch on to and be interested in. Um, so I'm going to find every single little, you know, oh, that's really curious thing like social credit. Social credit's fascinating to me. I mean, I just I I could read about social credit forever. Really, you're going to go in and you're going to follow everything that's on my phone, track everywhere that I, I've been, and you're going to give me demerits or you're going to give me positive vibes because you're not going to let me get on a train because I um, because I didn't, I let my dog poop on the um, park. You know, I mean, really? <laughs> I don't really understand this. You know, social credit, um, if we ever had anything like that or it moved to other countries, you know, this is back to your digital Silk Road. Um, it's really dangerous how much control a country could have, an authoritarian country could have, if they control everything that you say and do. Your phone um, tells you where you are. Right this minute, I'm in Palm Desert. Um, though I don't always live here, but I told you I live in a hotel. So um, so wherever I am, that's where I am. But right now, you know, it, my phone knows exactly where I am. Imagine that we have that kind of control over a person where they can't use their money. You want to go back to that digital um, currency? Here we go. If if your if your social credit score goes down, you can't access your money. This is where it's really a problem. Your money is all digital. If it's digital, you can't get to your money because China controls in China. They control whether or not you can get the money out of your bank account. I can only imagine what's happened to, you know, Jack Maud, who were silenced or whatever you want to call it. You can't get access to all the money you have. You can be the wealthiest person in the world. Um, I mean, I'm not going to crawl into a silo and like, you know, get my, um, you know, bags of uh, nuts. I'm not ready to do that. But I do think that there are threats to our world and we should be aware of them. And the regular person should be, too, because we could have a war and their kids are going to be in that war. I mean, I mean, you brought up Jack Ma and the, some of the financial stuff just blows my mind because what the one thing that we can do right now to the Chinese Communist Party is essentially starve them of capital. Like we don't the digital yuan is not a thing yet that's accepted in 140 countries uh, before it is. They need the U.S. dollar uh, and they're pretty obviously desperate for U.S. dollars the way that they're kind of wooing Wall Street and trying to, you know, uh, keep companies in China from being able to list outside, like make them list inside China so all the money goes in there. You know, like the one thing we can do right now is to try to not give them that leverage of giving them money, but we seem to be just pumping it in. Well, we're doing it on, you know, avenues like TikTok and other places that are um, owned by China too. We're buying China's products. This dress that I have, may have been made in Italy, except it was made in a Chinese company that the Chinese company moved to Italy so that they could call it made in Italy, right? So, you know, let us not deceive ourselves. Um, China has big manufacturing places in Italy just so they can call it made in Italy. That's why the New York Times had the article, Invest in China, but without illusions. Well, I mean, the... In your neck of the woods, um, one of the you know heartbreaking stories is the 13 tons of human hair that came into the New York Port Authority. And that was just one time 
We don't know how many times this has happened, but I actually, in the book, I multiply how many heads of hair from the Uyghur Muslims had to be cut in order to have 13 tons of hair. And yet people are actually wearing that hair. I'm, I'm sorry, every time I see like hair extensions, I get the creeps, right? I don't know, like you should all get the creeps. So you were talking about feeding or starving China. We starve them by not buying their product. Well, so then once again, I guess the solution is uh, to check out your books, Diplomacy with Chinese Characteristics and uh, Belts and Roads Under Beijing's Thumb. Uh, and if anyone wanted to follow you or learn more about your work, where should they go? Uh, my website is southchinaseabook.com. And uh, I have another one that is awakennow.com. And I have that because my next set of books are on genocide, Nazi Germany to Xinjiang, China. And the third book is um, the Uyghur uh, persecution. So I, that's my next series of books. So that's at awakennow.com. And if you, uh, my email address is um, rwinston at uchicago.edu. Went to University of Chicago. Um, love the school, 100%. Um, but yeah, um, you know, email me. Uh, I have social media, but I actually have, um, I don't even know what those sites are. So um, I can send you information. And just one, one other, one last question for my own sake. You know, started college at thirteen, multiple undergraduate and graduate degrees. You taught in a bunch of things, bunch of books. You've you 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 studied publishing so you could publish books. How do you do that? Coffee only gets you so far. Um, adrenaline. Ah, where can I buy that? If you have a passion for what you do, you wake up every day and you say, you know something. I'm going to make the most of today. And when the pandemic happened, I said, this is a blessing. Blessing is that I now have time to quarantine and um, not go out and do anything else. I'm just going to stay here and write books. And um, actually, I, I didn't just write those four books. I wrote two other books. One there, um, one of them is from high school to medical school. I know. <laughs> and the other one is on, <laughs> it's on a medical school and dental school education uh, admissions. So that's my other side of my life is um, college admissions. But um, so, I mean, I just hunkered down and, uh, you know, I don't eat anything different. I drink a lot of water. Um, so uh, I just know that I have a purpose in life. I'm not a college professor anymore, so I'm kind of on my own. And I can write and publish um, as much good data, good information that's backed up by sources um, as I can to help people understand the issues of the world. Well, thank you very much for joining us and sharing this information. Thank you. And I hope you have a great day. Well, that that was that was a mind-blowing interview to me. I mean, X is Apple. I knew you were gonna yeah. go back to that. Ne never watch a triple Apple movie. Oh, <laughs> oh. hey, that's hey. pretty good. Yeah. No, I want to be able to still eat apples. Stop it. Why would you not be able to eat an apple? Because you've associated with Vin Diesel. Okay, yeah. Well, no, there, that's there fine. He just creeps me out a little. Never turn your back on apples. I've actually never watched a Vin Diesel movie. You've never seen any of the Fast and Furious? I've never seen any of Chronicles the Fast and Furious. Chronicles of Riddick is art.
Wait, did, didn't you and I, Chris, go to see one of the Fast and Furious ones? No, the... I think we were on a plane together and you watched one. Oh, is that what happened? That's Possibly. kind of together. Okay. Chronicles of Riddick. That's not a That's Fast and Furious movie. But no, it's... but it's a Vin Diesel one. You keep what you kill. It's great. <laughs> right. I'm not sure I trust your movie <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's what, what are the, trash. What is the, the, the categories? Oh, the happenings of the categories. That was a great movie. Yeah, well... We started watching that together, and like after twenty minutes, I just couldn't. Yeah, because you have poor taste. Yeah, although although when we watched the room together, that was legit. I liked it when our friend Thomas just left the room in disgust after the movie was over. He just didn't say anything. He well, just he left. couldn't. He couldn't handle being in a room after seeing the, the room. room. There you go. I also like how you know we just have had an interview with like a genius, and we have devolved back to. Like pop Vin culture, Diesel. Yeah. Vin Diesel. I, well, Tommy was so was a genius in from a certain point of view, right? In the kind of Obi Wan Kenobi, I'm not going to lie to you about who your father is from a certain point of view, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. From a certain point of view, Tommy was so is a genius. Yeah, I mean, don't you ever feel like you know I'm fed up with this world? I say, I did the accent wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, we are not going to be writing books <laughs> <laughs> or making movies or possibly ever being on camera again. <laughs> Shelly just can't. can't. <laughs> well, I, for one, apologize for how disastrous the conclusion to this episode has become. I think we're just processing, right? Like we've just talked about something that's really heavy, you know, about China taking over the world through the Belt and Road Initiative. So now we need something to kind of release that energy. That's why I'm going to go watch some uh, Hermitcraft videos. I thought you were going to say a Vin Diesel movie. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should. Time to watch Fast and Furious 17. That will be filmed entirely in Shanghai. <laughs> yes. Everything's great here in Shanghai. We don't have to drive fast. <laughs> <laughs> or be furious. <laughs> Thank you for watching. If you're still I watching. I hope you come back another time. I swear we'll be better by then. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And while I make no such promises, I'm Matt Ganezda. You make no promises about being Matt Ganezda? <laughs> <laughs> Stop. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. This is not my fault. <laughs> <laughs>